So uh, we're back. This is yep. uh, the weirdest thing. This is our uh, podcast about weird shit. I'm Scotty Milder. Yes. And I'm Amelia Umpuro. We are your co-hosts. And I just was overcome with the craving for a cookie. So that sucks. <laughs> so you're going to have to just push through. <laughs> I'm just going to have to muscle through. Dang, that hit hard. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, fuck, if I had a cookie right now, that'd be yeah. awesome. Nope. Alas. Late. So yeah, so we have kind of a maritime themed episode yep. for you guys this week. And yeah, this is our Ahoy. Ahoy. Ahoy mateys. Our mateys. <laughs> and uh, this is perfect for me because this is something that Amelia knows about me that you guys may not know, but I'm absolutely terrified of the ocean. Um, yeah. Wouldn't even, did you even go in it when we were in LA? No, 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 no. Not even put it. You didn't even put a foot in. Nope. I just sat on the beach and read while you guys swam like dolphins out in the the waves. (laughs) That is an accurate representation. Yeah. Oddly, I do enjoy being on boats, Mm -hmm. um, but I do not enjoy the ocean itself. I do not enjoy being in the water. I find it terrifying. I find the idea of it terrifying. Do you like any bodies of water? Like, are you okay with lakes? Is it just the ocean? Not, not particularly. I don't. What about don't, rivers? Rivers probably creep me out less. It's the idea of the depth and the fact that you can't see through it. You don't know what's down there. Mm. And just the sheer size of it. Mm-hmm. But of course, being like who I am, I'm also just like completely fascinated. So I... Right. All sorts of terrible stories of shipwrecks and things that happen at the bottom of ocean trenches and weird, crazy creatures. And yeah. Yeah. Um, I haven't spent a lot of time out in like, I've spent a lot of time on beaches, but not a lot of time out in like open sea. So maybe my mm-hmm. opinion would shift a little bit, but we were, what were we just, oh, we were just having a text conversation where I was saying that I find mountains spookier than the ocean, but that's yeah. also because I'm not an idiot in the ocean. <laughs> maybe because I grew up in the mountains. Like I do not find mountains particularly spooky. Like they can be kind of imposing Mm-hmm. In in like gothic feeling, which is kind of cool, but like mm-hmm. it's not that like primal terror that I feel about the ocean. I guess I'm just not worried about swimming in the ocean and having a man come up and kill me in the ocean. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's true. It'll it'll be a shark. You know what I mean? And because I have a healthy respect for the sea, I feel like I can mostly avoid any natural things, mm-hmm. but I don't need to be worried about, a, yeah, a, a so, serial killer in the, in the so sea. So it's more, it's more the isolation of the mountains that gets you? Yes, very yeah. much so. Yeah. And I just think of like getting lost and like, you know, like twisting my ankle and I'm lost in the mountains all by myself. And like, and mm-hmm. I would never be in the, o- like in the deep ocean by myself. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, cause I'm not an idiot. Yeah. No, I mean, that makes sense. Like for Safety me, first. for me, it, it's the, it's the unknowable quality of the ocean, yeah. me, which is probably a big part of why I'm such a huge Lovecraft fan. Cause he obviously deals with like the mysteries of the sea very much. In right. 
And I get the like imposing quality. Like I, f- I think the thing that you said about the imposing quality of mountains, I think I feel that for the ocean, mm-hmm. but yeah, I think, I think my big thing is that I don't, I don't need to be worried about <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I don't need to be worried about a dude in the ocean is what it really yeah. comes down to. I don't need to be worried about toxic masculinity in the right. sea. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that's very true. I mean, for me, and maybe because I am less terrified of toxic masculinity, but for <laughs> me, it's the idea of like a giant fucking shark or squid or something coming up. Right. Or like, I mean, the images of some of the creatures that live at like the deep bottom of the ocean, that they just look like fucking aliens yeah it feels like it's not even part of this world to me like it feels like just this completely alien yeah hostile landscape or not landscape, seascape i guess it's a seascape (laughs) yeah Um, did you have you seen all the stuff about the sea spiracy show on i think it was on netflix i don't don't know what i don't know what it's about but everybody on twitter was like i cannot believe that you called this sea spiracy and not conspiracy (laughs) like that i can't believe that you guys passed on that and it really like the more i think about it the more bothered i am that no that they didn't (laughs) bring that into a meeting and be like sea spiracy and somebody was like what if you just flip it like it's already got c at the end Right. I mean, yeah, that seems like somebody should have caught that at some point. Somebody should have caught that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I just wonder if they like, you know, launched the show and then went to Twitter and they were like, let's see what Twitter's reaction is. And they were like, oh, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> Why didn't we think about that? Conspiracy yeah. is so much better than Seaspiracy. I mean, I really hope somebody got fired over that. But then I'm also like, did they do it on purpose? Were they like, no, we like we get it. Yeah, we maybe just, conspiracy we... is too cheesy. So we're going to like see spiracy is much more like. Which is just artful. hard to say. Seaspiracy. Seaspiracy. Yeah. yeah, that's what, it's oh. too many. It's too many. Uh, uh, <laughs> what are they called? It's 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 not a fricative. What are the uh, sibilants? Ass, sibilants? Yeah. 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 Did you sibilants. just say ass? I was going to say ass. I was going to say assonance, but I don't think that was right. I think sibilance is more correct. But we could just go too many ass? ass? Yeah. Question mark. I don't you can never have too many ass. But anyway. <laughs> so part of my horror slash fascination with the sea, because I think I'm starting first, correct? So yes. One of the things I've been fascinated with my entire life is the Bermuda Triangle. So we're going to talk about that today. Specifically, I'm going to, it's all going to lead up to the story of one of the great ghost ship mysteries. Mm, Yes. So here are my sources. Uh, Wikipedia, of course. The article, Sea Puzzles Still Baffle Men in the Push Button Age. This is from the Miami Herald by a writer named E.V.W. Jones from September 17th, 1950. I'll talk a little bit more about that article in a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, the Mysteries of the Unknown Mystic Places book from Time Life Books. From Ooh, do you remember those Time Life books? Right, yes, yeah. I do. That's the one you just posted, right? That has is does it yeah. have a, the pyramid on the? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been slowly collecting these books off of like eBay and stuff over the last yes. couple of years because I used to have, I think, almost the entire set when I was a kid, but of course it burned up in the fire. So. Oh, what are the ones that have to do? Like, I know that we, and we've talked about this, they have to do with like creatures, right? And there's the black one that is like all of the really scary ones. That's the, is it the Enchanted World series? Enchanted? I think it's Enchanted World. I'm also collecting those books too. Oh God, just 
hours pouring over those when I was a kid. Yeah, I've got almost all of the uh, Mysteries of the Unknown books and maybe half of the Enchanted World books. Yes. So Good job. Yeah, they're pretty fucking great. Mm. Uh, so yeah, so talking about that book, Mystic Places, also the article, What is Known and Not Known About the Bermuda Triangle from Botanica Online. Okay. Bermuda Triangle Behind the Intrigue from National Geographic. This is from December 14th, 2003. Mm. Has the quote mystery of the Bermuda Triangle finally been solved? This is from thequint.com, October 24th, 2016. And then most recent, uh, Vanished Without a Trace Inside the Myths and Mysteries of the Bermuda Triangle. This is from Business Insider, February 25th, 2020. The, okay, you have like eight times more sources yeah. for your story <laughs> I, than I do. Well, like I told you before we started recording, the, the problem, this is a little bit like Mothman and that there's so fucking much. Mm. So I really had to like pick and choose what to focus on. So mm-hmm. first, let's just talk about the Bermuda Triangle itself. I'm sure everyone's kind of heard of it, but just a little bit more detail. So it's also known as the Devil's Triangle, Limbo of the Lost, or the Hoodoo Sea. Different people have different what you would what would you call like vertices of the triangle. Oh, like okay. On the triangle. Mm-hmm. Um, so like the area, some people say it's about five hundred thousand square miles. Other people will say it's no, it's like up to one point five million square miles. What? Okay. Um, I, Sorry. I, yeah. <laughs> I don't know I mean, why I got so mad about that. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to get to that in a second because I think okay. there's some bullshit there. But like, I mean, basically the, the vertices are generally agreed to be Miami, Florida, San Juan, Puerto Rico, and then Bermuda, the country of Bermuda. And okay. forms a triangle. So that would be the Bermuda Triangle. But some people have said it stretches all the way to the Irish coast. This seems like horseshit. Yeah, I'm looking at the look on your face. This seems like horseshit <laughs> to me because at a certain point, it's like, well, that's the entire North fucking Atlantic. Yeah, that's too much. And all that feels like to me is people who are trying to lump things in with the mysteries of the Bermuda Triangle that maybe yeah. aren't part of it. So they're like, well, no, actually it goes to Ireland because they're trying to like lump in some shipwreck off the coast of Ireland or something. But I mean, like, that's just the ocean. You know yeah. what I mean? Like <laughs> just like the entire fucking ocean. Well, and I mean, it's just like, it's part and parcel of the ocean. It's a fucking vast ass expanse of water with nothing. Yeah. And so exactly. like stuff's going to happen in there. Well, and I'm going to talk about, like, we're going to talk about how really kind of realistic this whole idea of the Bermuda Triangle is here. Okay. I'll, I, I'm, minutes, okay. But... Sorry. No. Pause, because I I moved my own chair, but I have to move the other chair. Okay. Sorry. This is becoming a podcast about me moving a chair. <laughs> Jeez Louise. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, Thank you. Sorry. No problem. So anyway, uh, like weird shit has, has been reported in the Bermuda Triangle since at least the time of Christopher Columbus. Mm-hmm. So like, for instance, Columbus, when he was sailing through the region, he, now this is an interesting, I kind of never remember who the crew person is. Who's like up in the fucking crow's nest, like watching everything. I mean, it's not like a lookout, is it? That seems I, too elementary of a it's title. Prob- it's probably lookout, but, <laughs> but it may have been the lookout saw something. Okay. And then Christopher Columbus, and this seems like in keeping with kind of the asshole that Columbus was. Oh yeah. Um, kind of took credit for seeing it himself. Surprise, surprise. Um, but either way, he recorded seeing what he said was, quote, a bursting flame of fire strike the sea and cause a strange light to appear in the distance. What? 
I mean, it almost kind of sounds like a meteor or something. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. But apparently they kind of set sail for the strange light and found land. The reason why they think Columbus may have like sort of ganked the credit for this is apparently mm-hmm. Spain was offering a bonus to whoever sighted land first. So if the lookout saw land, Christopher Columbus would lose out on that bonus. Are you serious? Yeah. God, I mean, what a dick. What just what a dick across the board. <laughs> oh my God. Christopher Columbus. What uh I can't I don't even have words. Yeah. Just a just a grade A piece a-hole. Yeah. Right. Mm, okay. So that's kind of the first like recorded strange thing. Um, quote unquote, in the Bermuda okay. Triangle. Mm-hmm. You'll kind of like this one, I think. There was also an Admiral George Summers. I didn't do a lot of reading about who this guy is, but he was commanding a fleet. They encountered a hurricane in 1609, which severely damaged the ships. I think sunk some of the ships. His ship was about to sink, so they ended up landing on what became Bermuda, and he ended up establishing the Bermuda colony there. Oh, um, wow. And it's actually believed that his experience is part of the inspiration for Shakespeare's The Tempest really yeah i did Um, like that thank you yeah i figured (laughs) so i could not find any very uh detailed or consistent numbers on like how many ships and planes and stuff have supposedly disappeared in the bermuda triangle Mm -hmm. but i did see somewhere that at least 50 ships and 20 airplanes have disappeared kind of in the last century and that up to around 8,000 lives have been lost in like shipwrecks or disappearances since kind of the middle of the 19th century. Wow. Seems like a lot, right? That feels like a lot. But the fact of the matter is the Bermuda Triangle, and I'll get a little bit more to this in a second. When you look at that statistically, it's really not one of the most dangerous shipping lanes or anything in the world. Like there's not an inordinate number of shipwrecks and plane crashes in the Bermuda Triangle, statistically speaking. Okay. But the thing about the Bermuda Triangle is it's not just the number. It's a lot of times it's just the level of weirdness of things that happen in, in the triangle itself. Right. So the whole concept of the Bermuda Triangle kind of started with this article from the Miami Herald, which I cited at the beginning, is from September 17th, 1950. It was written by a guy named Edwin Van Winkle Jones, which I just think is a fantastic name. That's a great name. It doesn't use the phrase Bermuda Triangle, but it's one of the first things that is kind of like aggregating, like, let's talk about some of the weird shit that has happened here. Mm -hmm. It mentions the disappearance of Flight 19, which I'm going to talk about in a second. Also, the disappearance of a 350-foot freighter called the Sandra. I think this was also in 1950. Mm -hmm. It had a 12-person crew and disappeared while sailing between Savannah and Puerto Caballo, Venezuela. Talks about a plane that disappeared with 32 passengers, disappeared two years before the Sandra, Mm -hmm. and then a British airliner called the Ariel that also disappeared uh, on its flight from Bermuda to London, had 20 people aboard. Um, And then it mentions a few other weird things. And it's sort of, it's a very short article and like the tone of it's just sort of like, isn't this kind of weird? So here's a quote from the end of the article. It says, these and other modern mysteries have established a role of about 135 persons who went forth confidently into a world they thought small. But it is the same big world the ancients knew into which men and their machines and ships can disappear without a trace Ooh. so this kind of started the ball rolling with people being like is there something weird here is this area weird okay so like um, there there wasn't a lot of talk about this weirdness n- no uh, everything this i article. read kind of takes it back to this was like first kind of put it into the zeitgeist okay and then in 1952 so two years later fate magazine published a short article by a guy named george sand 
that also talked about the disappearances and really focused on Flight 19. Mm-hmm. And this was the first article to really lay out like those commonly accepted boundaries. So this is like Miami, San Juan, Puerto Rico, and Bermuda. Mm-hmm. And it's also the first time where someone kind of suggested like maybe something supernatural or extraterrestrial is going on here. Ooh, okay. And then American Legion magazine in 1962, this is about 10 years later, did an extensive story on the disappearance of Flight 19. The author quoted the flight leader as saying, quote, we are entering white water. Nothing seems right. We don't know where we are. The water is green, no white. He also quoted officials at the Navy Board of Inquiry about this disappearance of this flight, stating that the planes, quote, flew off to Mars. What? Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? My guess is whoever said this during the Navy Board of Inquiry, it was like sort of just like saying it not as a joke, but as like a like, like they was, they flew off, man. Yeah, you know, like they like took a, off, ended up on Mars or whatever the hell. Yeah, more more okay. like more like a, a like metaphorically speaking. I don't okay. think they were like <laughs> saying like we think that these planes now are on Mars. Like I don't okay. think it was that literal. And then the phrase, like the name Bermuda Triangles, is really kind of attributed to a writer named Vincent Gaddis. In February 1964, he wrote an article for the pulp magazine Argosy mm-hmm. called, quote, The Deadly Bermuda Triangle. He later expanded the article into a book called Invisible Horizons. And so this is where people kind of really like the name Bermuda Triangle kind of stuck. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Before I get into some of the specific stories, what are possible reasons for the Bermuda Triangle? Mm-hmm. So here's the fun explanations. Here's okay. the paranormal shit. Okay. <laughs> so it could be leftover technology from the lost continent of Atlantis. Mm. Two things really point to this as like being one of the explanations. The first being the clairvoyant and Christian mystic Edgar Casey. Okay. Who I kind of want to do just an article about him or an article, a story about him at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause his story is really kind of fascinating on its own, but he lived between 1877 and 1945. His whole deal was he would like put himself into this like dream, like state or trance like state. Okay. And he claimed when he went into this state, he could channel his quote, higher self. And in these states, he would answer all sorts of questions about like reincarnation, about the Akashic record, which is a whole, like, I'm not going to get into it, but it's like a whole metaphysical concept about like every human experience being recorded in this like metaphysical record called the Akashic record. Okay. Um, yeah, that's a whole thing. I don't he like would- that. Yeah. I don't like I don't like some record of all the shit that I've done. I've, yeah, done, some, exactly. I've done some regrettable shit in my life. <laughs> I know. No, it's, it's there. It's in the Akashic <laughs> record. Yeah. <laughs> okay (laughs) yeah and then he would talk about like the afterlife and of course he talked about atlantis he claimed that the lost continent of atlantis basically filled the entire north atlantic between the gulf of mexico and gibraltar and he said it was destroyed in a catastrophic event around 10,000 bc Okay. Now, the one thing that people like really latch onto to claim that this is the location of the lost continent of Atlantis is something called the Bimini Road or the Bimini Wall. Mm-hmm. So this is an underwater rock formation. It's near North Bimini Island in the Bahamas. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's about a half mile long, sort of in a northeast southwest direction, and it's comprised of these sort of roughly rectangular, sometimes hexagonal or polygonal blocks, like limestone blocks. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people, you know, people who believe in the Bermuda Triangle, believe in Edgar Casey, 
you know, theosophists and paranormal people, they think that this is the remains of a road or a wall or a pier or some other man-made structure. And that this is proof that there was something that has since sunk beneath the waves. Geologists and archaeologists, however, they think it's just natural. (laughs) They think it's basically like beach rock that just sort of happened to break up into these geometric blocks. But they have radiocarbon dated it and they think it's about 3,500 years old. So the whole thing about Atlantis is that's its own story. But I've, I mentioned this on our very first episode. I personally think the stories of Atlantis are probably rooted in the Thera volcano, which Mm -hmm. erupted on the Greek island of Santorini and took out the Minoan civilization. Mm -hmm. This is like, I mean, this is like documented that that happened. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So yeah, it seems like the most likely source for Atlantis to me, but who knows? Maybe it was like taking up the entire Atlantic Ocean. What do I know? (laughs) I mean, maybe. Maybe. (laughs) Um, And then of course, people say it's UFOs, extra dimensional time warps, et cetera, et cetera. So here's okay. some of the possible natural explanations for the Bermuda Triangle. Okay. So people have definitely reported like weird magnetic anomalies and like compasses changing and not being accurate. Mm-hmm. But this could either be there could be some natural magnetic anomaly there, or just the fact that like inexperienced pilots and navigators, like compasses will change as you move over great distances, mm-hmm. and people may not understand that. Now, here's something I found in that Britannica article, and I'm going to quote it because I don't particularly understand it. Okay. Um, But it says, quote, the agonic line sometimes passes through the Bermuda Triangle, including a period in the early 20th century. The agonic line is a place on Earth's surface where true north and magnetic north align, and there is no need to account for magnetic declination on a compass i don't know what most of that means but this seems to be an explanation for maybe why there's weird magnetic shit okay if can Um, we if we have any compass experts out there yeah or navigational people maybe i tried to read about it that means either i tried to read about it and like everything that deals with science it's like i'm fascinated until i get into the details and then i'm like what the fuck does any of this this is too hard (laughs) this is too hard (laughs) so that could be an explanation for the weird magnetic shit and compass shit for the reason why so many things disappear never to be found this could simply be because of the gulf stream the gulf stream is basically like think of it like a big 50 mile wide river in the ocean Mm -hmm. that's just moving at a fast pace so if something goes down in the gulf stream if a plane has to try to land on the ocean or a ship is in trouble by the time it sinks the gulf stream is going to carry it much farther than where its last reported location was so you said it was sorry you said it was 50 miles wide about 50 miles wide. okay Okay, thank you. So this could be just why you can't find some of these things. Mm. Then, of course, human error. And I'll get to that when I talk about Flight 19. Violent weather events and hurricanes. This is obviously like sort of Hurricane Alley. Right. And then here's one of I found the more interesting recent possible explanations is basically what are called microbursts. So this is from that article of the Quint.com. Um, mm-hmm. This is something I'm sure our airline pilot source... <laughs> 
knows mm-hmm. a lot about microbursts. Mm-hmm. So basically microburst, again, I didn't get into like the super science of it, but basically it's like something with like cold air and warm air. It basically creates this column of air that pushes violently down. Mm-hmm. It can be part of storms. And this is like documented for causing lots of plane crashes. Mm-hmm. Like there's a famous one, I think that happened in Dallas. And I think there's one outside of Detroit where a plane, if it gets hit by a microburst, it'll just like be shoved into the ground. Yeah. Well, they've determined with the weather in this region of kind of the Caribbean, NASA satellites have seen these strange hexagonal clouds that they don't quite understand what causes them, but they think they could be causing microbursts. So here's a quote. It says, the hexagonal clouds found by NASA's satellite has baffled meteorologists as they have said that straight edge clouds are not typically found. The clouds range 32 to 88 kilometers across and create winds of up to 106 kilometers per hour. These create air bombs that bring ships and planes down. They're formed by what are called microbursts. They're blasts of air that come down out of the bottom of the clouds and hit the ocean, and they create waves that can sometimes be massive in size once they start to interact with each other. Some of the clouds in the region have also been found to be as big as Ireland. What? Yeah, and the waves created can be as high as 45 feet, making it difficult for ships to cross. Wow. So, I mean, that'll bring down some planes. Yeah. I'll sink some boats. Yeah. A cloud the size of a fucking country. Right. <laughs> Jeez. Other reasons why ships may disappear and planes be disappear never to be found is because this area of the ocean is home to some of the deepest underwater trenches in the world. Mm-hmm. So like wreckage could settle basically so far down that you can't reach it. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a quote from the National Geographic article. It says, most of the seafloor in the Bermuda Triangle is about 19,000 feet down near its southern tip. The Puerto Rico Trench dips at one point to 27,500 feet below sea level. So this is kind of almost like the Marianas Trench. Yeah, Yeah, that is so deep. That is... This, that this, is uncomfortably. This is the type of shit that gives me nightmares. The idea uh-huh. of being so far underwater. I just. Yeah. And then here's like one of, I think, the weirdest possible explanations. But I okay. like this one because it is so weird. There could be large deposits of methane along the continental shelves. And methane, when it erupts, kicks up these huge, enormous bubbles. Right. And so there have been experiments in Australia that have showed they've done kind of miniature versions of this. Methane bubbles will sink scale model ships because it'll rapidly decrease the density of the water. So if like a big, like the earth just farts out a big methane at you. <laughs> hits your ship and you just go down. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's so tragic. But like, I mean, if this is all because of some sea farts, that's just, that's just so... <laughs> Yeah. Like humiliating. Right. Like that's what brought down your massive ship is just, just a, a sea big, fart. Right. But like I said, when you consider the actual amount of traffic that goes through the Bermuda Triangle, because mm-hmm. it is like one of the major shipping lanes in the world. Yeah. That statistically, there's really not any more sunk ships or disappeared ships or things there than there are anywhere else. Okay. So there was a 2013 World Wildlife Fund study. I, mm-hmm. I, I read it as World Wildlife Fun in that kind of 
screws me up there. World Wildlife Fund study of shipping mm-hmm. lanes. It determined that the Bermuda Triangle is not one of the world's most dangerous shipping lanes. And then here's a quote from that National Geographic article. It says, the region is highly traveled and has been a busy crossroads since the early days of European exploration. To say quite a few ships and airplanes have gone down there is like saying there are an awful lot of car accidents on the New Jersey Turnpike. Surprise, mm. surprise. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like I said, it's not necessarily the number. It's like that some of them are really fucking weird. So I'm going to talk about a few of the most famous stories from the Bermuda okay. Triangle. So the first thing I'm going to talk about, just very briefly, is the USS Cyclops. Ooh. So this was a Proteus-class U.S. Navy Collier, which is basically a cargo ship. Okay. It was launched in 1910, and then it was sailing between Brazil and Baltimore in February of 1918 when she disappeared without a trace, and it brought down its crew of 309 people. Wow. The reasons why it could have sunk... Uh, it's mainly, it's generally considered that it was probably heavily overloaded. And in fact, it made an unscheduled stop in Barbados because the water was going up what was called the Plimsoll line, which is mm-hmm. like the line on the ship. You don't want the water to go up above that because it'll start going up on the on the deck and could bring a ship down, could capsize mm-hmm. the ship. So they think the ship was overloaded. A couple weird things about this story is that it might have been sighted on March 9th of that year by a molasses tanker called the Amelco near the coast of Virginia. But this doesn't seem likely because considering when it departed, it shouldn't have been anywhere near Virginia yet. So this would have put it way ahead of schedule. Okay. But still, people generally think it might have been caught in a violent storm, could have been overloaded and just capsized. And, you know, this is during World War One, so it could have been sunk by the German Navy. Mm. very mysterious no one knows what happened Mm. probably the most the single most famous story is the disappearance of flight 19 so this was on december 5th 1945 there were five what are called avenger torpedo bombers Mm -hmm. uh they were flying out of fort lauderdale naval air station led by flight instructor lieutenant charles g taylor it was a 13 crew flight between split between five planes Mm -hmm. they were on a routine navigational training exercise somewhere over the bermuda triangle the ships completely disappeared or, or the planes completely disappeared. Mm-hmm. The flight started smoothly. It left Fort Lauderdale at 2.10 p.m. But then around 3.40 p.m., Taylor, who is, the, who is leading the flight, Charles G. Taylor, mm-hmm. sent a disturbing message that was intercepted by Robert Cox. Robert Cox was in another training flight, like miles away. They're flying over Fort Lauderdale. He started asking Taylor what the problem was, and Taylor responded, both my compasses are out, and I'm trying to find Fort Lauderdale. Mm. They continued to communicate for a while. Cox was trying to figure out where Taylor was. Taylor couldn't figure it out because his compass was spinning around. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to ascertain his position so that Cox could direct him back to land. Eventually, though, he lost contact with Taylor altogether. But while Taylor was communicating with this Robert Cox, he had also managed to make contact with ground station at Port Everglades. Mm-hmm. So they were also trying to figure out where he was. Eventually, Taylor and the other planes found a series of small islands. Taylor was like, oh, okay, we found Bermuda. Like they, they were pretty sure they found Bermuda. Mm-hmm. So the last communication with him was like, well, we'll fly west until we hit the beach or run out of gas. Because if they're in Bermuda, if they fly west, they'll hit, I think it's like North Carolina. Eventually. Yeah. But the planes vanished and have never been found. What? So this is one of, like I said, this is one of the most famous stories. But there are a couple things to keep in mind okay. uh, before we think it's aliens or something. Okay. <laughs> one is that, so Taylor's compass was out. Yeah. But apparently the compasses on the other planes appeared to have been working because there were also communications that were 
intercepted from the other planes. Mm-hmm. The other planes kept saying, like, Taylor was convinced that they were near Bermuda. The other planes were like, no, we're nowhere near Bermuda. And they kept trying to convince him, like, where they thought they were. And he just refused to believe them. <sighs> um, so what they actually think happened was that when he saw these islands, he thought he was looking at Bermuda. Mm-hmm. But they were actually over the Florida Keys. So when he said, we'll turn west, because eventually hit land, they just went out over the Gulf of Mexico and then ran out of gas and probably crashed. So a lot of people have said, well, if this is the case, why didn't the other planes abandon him? But I mean, I was literally just thinking that. Yeah. But I think you just got to keep in mind, like, this is during World War II. I guess it's right after the end of World War II. Um, Mm -hmm. He's their commanding officer, and he's making the decisions. (sighs) And they abandoned him. They could have been brought up on court-martial charges, et cetera. My God. But it sounds like, from what I've read, I've read a few different things where it's like, they were trying to convince him, no, we think we're over the Florida Keys. He's like, no, this can't be the Florida Keys. We're over Bermuda. And he just, he, and they were like, no, but our compasses are all saying this is where we are. We're going in this direction. Yeah, dude. He's saying, no, we're going in this direction. Like he just wasn't. Oh my God. So I tend to think the supernatural explanation for this story is unlikely. Yeah. So this is just ego and human error. Ego and human error. Mm. and a bad compass here's one of the other weirder stories okay there really is no explanation for if this is true okay i'll leave it to you guys to decide if you believe this story okay so this is the story of bruce gernon jr so on december 4th 1970 bruce gernon jr was flying between anderos island in the bahamas towards palm beach florida he was flying his own beachcraft bonanza airplane his father was his co-pilot not long after they took off as they're climbing they see this very strange cigar-shaped cloud okay so gernon was like well i don't want to go through that cloud so he tries to accelerate and go up above it but as he's rising the cloud just kind of rose up to meet him what and then like enveloped the plane no right as the cloud is like closing around the plane he sees what looks like a tunnel so he's like okay i don't want to get caught in no visibility so we're gonna like hopefully go through this tunnel and maybe we can see our way through to the other side Mm -hmm. this is what he said they enter the tunnel he says the walls were glowing white with small white clouds rotating clockwise around the interior as they're going through, the plane started to pick up unnatural speed and started going so fast that Gernon and his father both experienced a few seconds of total weightlessness. <laughs> yeah. Uh, fudge. Okay. <laughs> so finally, they come out the other end of the tunnel. They fly out of the cloud into this like strange greenish haze. Gernon looks down at the compass. Again, compass. He sees mm-hmm. the compass is, is just spinning. So he had no idea where the hell they were. All of his navigation equipment was not working. He tried to radio ground control. Couldn't get a hold of anybody. Mm-hmm. So he's just like, I don't, I don't know what the hell's going on. But they think they had just left Bimini. Um, okay. A couple seconds later, he looks down and through this green haze he sees land he thinks oh okay there's the bimini keys because he thinks they're still in bimini Mm -hmm. so he's like we're gonna land i don't know what's going on we're gonna bring this plane down because it's dangerous to fly at this point Mm-hmm. But as they're approaching, he recognizes the land. It wasn't the Bimini Keys. It was Miami Beach. Okay. So this basically meant that a trip that normally took them about 75 minutes, they arrived in about 45 minutes. They also burned 12 fewer gallons of fuel than normal. What? So basically, again, if you believe the story is that they somehow entered like a time warp. That carried them across the Bermuda Triangle. Listen, time warp stories <laughs> are fascinating and also creep me the F out. 
Mm-hmm. And I've read a fair amount. Like if you read that Mystic Places book, I remember this from when I was a kid reading this story mm-hmm. and just being totally fascinated by it. Yeah. Um, I've read other stuff from this Bruce Gernon Jr. later. And, you know, for telling such a crazy story, he is kind of, I find him somewhat credible. Like he doesn't seem like the type of person who's like attention sinking. Right. Didn't have any like history of making up crazy stories. Right. Also, it's confirmed by his father. And I think it's confirmed that like, you know, they recorded their takeoff time and landing time and they should not have been able to make it that distance in <sighs> 45 minutes. So. Dang. Oof. That's creepy. That's a genuinely strange story. Yep. And then here's the main story I'm going to tell today. Okay. This is about the Carol A. Deering. Okay. So the Carol A. Deering was a five-masted schooner that was built in Bath, Maine in 1919. It was built by the G.G. Deering Company. And then it was named after the owner's son. Mm -hmm. So it was a 255-foot-long ship, weighed about 2,000 tons. And it was one of the last large commercial sailing cargo ships. So this was kind of the era where these sailing ships are being replaced by, like, gas-powered and diesel-powered vehicles. Mm -hmm. So on July 19th, 1920, the Carol A. Deering it sailed out of Puerto Rico. It arrived in Newport News, Virginia, where it was supposed to pick up a load of coal that they were then going to sail down to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Mm-hmm. The captain was a guy named William H. Merritt. He was a World War I hero who'd been cited for bravery when he saved his entire crew after his last vessel was sunk by a German U-boat off the mm. coast of New Jersey in 1918. And then Merritt's son Sewell was the first mate. The rest of the crew was a 10-man crew. It was made up entirely of Scandinavians. Um, On August 26th, they pass an area that's called the Virginia Capes. So this is essentially like the entrance to Chesapeake Bay. Um, But as they're kind of flying, uh, flying, sailing out of Chesapeake Bay into the Atlantic, this Captain Merritt, he fell ill. So the Daring had to turn back and put into port up in Delaware to drop off him and his son. Mm. But they still needed to get this coal down to Rio de Janeiro. So the Daring Company hired a guy named Willis B. Warmel. Okay. So... Warmel, he was a 66-year-old retired sea captain. He was, like, very experienced, but he was retired. He was older. They also hired a guy named Charles B. McClellan to be his first mate. Mm -hmm. So they set sail again for Rio de Janeiro on September 8th. Made it down to Rio de Janeiro without any problem. And then while they were in Rio, Warmel gave his crew, like, leave for a while. Just said, go go ashore, have some fun, Mm -hmm. set up, you know, let off some steam, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, while they were there, Warmel himself met up with a friend, a guy named Captain Goodwin, who was also captaining a cargo ship that had put to port in Rio de Janeiro. And while he was meeting with this Captain Goodwin, Warmel started bitching about his crew, basically. Okay. Saying they're no good. The only person he seemed to like was the ship's engineer, who was a guy named Herbert Bates. Okay. Who I guess he had sailed with before. So then the ship left Rio on December 2nd, and it stopped for supplies in Barbados. Mm-hmm. While there, the first mate, this Charles B. McClellan, uh-huh. he went to town and just got shit faced. <laughs> okay. I mean, and, it's Barbados. So, yeah. so you know, I, I kind of understand what you do in Barbados stays in Barbados, I guess. <laughs> um, but while he was getting drunk in town, he met up with this other captain that he knew, a guy named Hugh Norton, who was the captain of a ship called the Snow. And he started complaining to this Hugh Norton about Warmel, his captain. Okay. He said that Warmel would not let him discipline the crew without interfering. He said like Warmel was basically micromanaging everything. Mm. He also claimed he had to do all of the navigation himself because Warmel was basically blind from what I've read. Okay. So I guess, you know, like the early 1920s when he could still hire a blind ship's captain. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. 
<laughs> did that right when you were drinking some tea. <laughs> They're like, nah, that'll do. Like, he's, he's fine. That'll I mean, fine. they've got like compasses and shit. What do you need to see <laughs> right. on the ocean, anyways? It's fine. Yeah. All right. Bye. Bye. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> and then later, so they're still in Barbados. This Captain Norton went into another cafe. McClellan came in and he overheard McClellan say to someone else, he said, I'll get the captain before we get to Norfolk. I will. Oh my God. Okay. So there's drama. Mm-hmm. While he's in Barbados, Charles B. McClellan ends up getting arrested for drunkenness. So Captain Warnell. For fuck's sake. Yeah. You guys I, get your shit together. I mean, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like you've got a blind captain in a mean Everybody's drunk talking of a first shit <laughs> about each other. Fucking, yeah. you know, nobody wants to sleep on the lower bunk. Yeah, no one's Everybody's complaining about the food. (laughs) Yeah. McClellan gets arrested. Warmel wanted to fire him, but then kind of relented, decided to bail him out of jail on January 9th. Okay. Um, And they set sail again for the U.S. So the next time the Daring was sighted was by the Cape Lookout Lightship off the coast of North Carolina. Okay. Um, This was on January 18th, 1921. So a lightship is basically like a floating lighthouse. Like they put a ship out there with a light to kind of help direct ships. Okay. The Deering sailed up alongside the light ship and hailed it. So the light ship's captain, this guy named Jacobson, he said that a tall, thin man with reddish hair and a foreign accent spoke to him through a megaphone and told him that the Deering had lost its anchors in a storm off of Cape Fear. Mm-hmm. And then he asked Jacobson to go ahead and radio the, J- the GG Deering company and tell them about this. Jacobson said, sure, made a note, but then discovered his own radio was broken, so he wasn't able to report it. A few minutes later, a mysterious steamer passed by. Mm-hmm. Jacobson tried to hail the steamer because he was trying to get them to relay this message from the crew of the Deering, which had already mm-hmm. moved on. Mm-hmm. But the steamer did not respond to his hails. And Jacobson, it was like bad weather. So Jacobson was not able to make out its name. Okay. A couple other weird things that Jacobson noticed during the encounter with the Deering. First was that this redheaded man he talked to with the foreign accent mm-hmm. was obviously not Captain Warnell. So, okay. yeah, so that's something. Okay. Um, and this foreign accent, if you remember, the majority of the crew was Scandinavian. Right. So this could mean a lot of things. We'll get there in a second. Okay. He also noticed that the crew was, quote, milling around the quarter deck. So the quarter deck of a ship, basically, it's like this raised platform behind the main mast. It's like a raised deck. Mm-hmm. And this is where the captain sort of commands the rest of the ship from. Mm-hmm. The quarter deck is generally off limits to the rest of the crew. I think the captain okay. and the first mate are allowed up there. Okay. So the fact that kind of the whole crew was up just hanging out hanging on the quarter deck was yeah. very, very strange. <sighs> okay. But the Deering moved on. Then this mysterious steamer came along. It moved on. The next day, another vessel saw the Deering and it appeared to be sailing for an area called the Diamond Shoals. Mm-hmm. So the Diamond Shoals are this infamous, like constantly shifting, constantly changing, like cluster of underwater sandbars. They stretch out eight miles from Cape Hatteras, North Carolina. It's a very dangerous area. The shoals are thought to be responsible for about 600 shipwrecks. Whoa. And this area is known as the graveyard of the Atlantic. The ship can we saw- not just like buoy it off? Like, can we not just like put some... I mean, they might have by this point, but I think back then, no. <laughs> they were, they just were like, like, sorry, sorry, lads. Good luck. <laughs> I'm saying this like this is back in the 1700s. This is like 1920 something. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> but so this this ship, and I couldn't figure out who this ship was. They saw the Daring, looked like they were headed towards the Diamond Shoals. And at first they were like, maybe we should try to hail them. But then mm-hmm. they saw that there was nobody on the deck. So there was nobody to hail. So it was just, the ship was just kind of going towards the Diamond Shoals. They kind of assume, well, the crew, they'll see the Cape Hatteras lighthouse, or there was also a Diamond Shoals light ship out there. Mm-hmm. Once they see these, they'll change course. They'll be fine. On January 31st, 1921, the Daring was spotted at dawn by a Coast Guard officer named C.P. Brady. He was on duty at the station at Cape Hatteras. Mm-hmm. He saw that the Daring was hard aground with all of its sails set on the outer edge of the Diamond Shoal. So it, like, it had run up on one of these sandbars, it looked like. Okay. Coast Guard rescue ships tried to get out there, but there was basically the tail end of a hurricane. So it was just mm. like terrible weather. Mm-hmm. So they had to wait a few days. They finally made it out there on February 4th. The ship was completely abandoned. What? Yeah. A couple other strange things. The steering equipment was damaged. The wheel was completely shattered. Something called the binnacle box mm-hmm. was like stove in. And I looked it up. The binnacle box, this is a quote. This is just from Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. It's a waist-high case or stand on the deck of a ship, generally mounted in front of the helmsman, in which navigational instruments are placed for easy and quick reference, as well as to protect the delicate instruments. Okay. Um, so this was just like smashed in. And then the rudder was also smashed, and it was like disengaged from the stock. Ooh. The ship's log was missing. All of the navigation equipment was gone. What I wonder from reading this, because it said this binnacle box was like broken, Mm-hmm. wonder if someone smashed open the binnacle box to get the navigation equipment out. Yeah. All the crew's personal effects were gone and the two lifeboats were gone. Two red distress signals had been lit. So it sounds like up on the masts were these like red lights that you could light. Okay. Would be distress signals. And then in the galley, it appeared that like food was in the middle of being prepared and then kind of abandoned. In what? The, the middle of this, whatever happened. The Coast Guard sent out a cutter named the Manning to try and salvage the ship, but they were unable to. It was just, it was too badly damaged. They declared it a hazard for navigation and ended up destroying it with dynamite on March 4th. What? So parts of the bow later washed up ashore on Okracoke Island, which is in North Carolina. Okay. And then wooden timbers washed ashore on Hatteras Island, and locals used them to build houses. And apparently these houses still stand today, so... You can go to Hatteras Island and buy a house with haunted boards from a haunted ghost ship. So, you know, if that's your thing, go do it. Which of, it absolutely is both of our things. I mean, I, if I lived in North Carolina, I would be moving there tomorrow. But. Right. So the government launched like a massive investigation. It ended up involving five different government branches. So the Commerce Department, the Treasury Department, Justice, Navy, and the State Department. Mm-hmm. And the Secretary of State at the time was a guy named Herbert Hoover. Mm. Yeah. I'm already disappointed. <laughs> yeah, we're already. <laughs> it was funny just watching your face just like fall the moment I said that name. <laughs> um, Hoover just... Yeah. <laughs> just... Not, what not a mess. Good. What a mess. But as yeah. in this moment, he actually had kind of an interesting insight. Okay. He realized that actually it wasn't just the the Deering that apparently had been abandoned. Several ships of all sorts of different nationalities had disappeared at around the same time, including one. It was a sulfur ship called the Hewitt. So they're trying to figure out, well, what would made all these ships disappear? I think it was within like weeks of each other. 
Whoa. There have been a series of really bad hurricanes in the area, and they think this might have brought down several of the ships. Mm-hmm. But what was interesting is both the Deering and the Hewitt, who, which I think were sailing essentially at exactly the same time in the same area, were like sailing away from the storms. So there's no reason why the hurricane should have brought them down. Mm-hmm. An Italian investigation into another ship, the Monte San Michel, mm-hmm. confirmed that there had been very strong hurricanes in the area at the time. The investigation closed two years later, 1922, with no finding. So Mm. to this day, no one really knows what happened. So here's some of the theories. A lot of people try to tie this to the Bermuda Triangle. Okay. Particularly a guy named Charles Fort. He was kind of like a paranormal writer. Like if you ever heard the word Fortian, Mm -hmm. um, which basically means like explorations of science kind of not accepted by other scientists. You know, this is like the paranormal. Okay. The term Fortian goes back to this Charles Fort. Okay. He was responsible for pushing this paranormal Bermuda Triangle explanation. I mean, this is before the Bermuda Triangle was even a thing. Right. Um, This is before that 1950 article, but he was saying there had to have been something paranormal about this. Now, it is generally agreed that the ship did sail through the Bermuda Triangle. You know, when it left Barbados, which is the last time anyone saw any of the, like, known members of the crew, Mm -hmm. it then went through the Bermuda Triangle where it was then spotted by this light ship that had this strange conversation with the guy with the foreign accent. Question. Yeah. The guy on the light ship, he could see that it was... Like he saw the name or was the dude mm-hmm. with the foreign accent like, yo, we're the Charles Daring. I'm not sure, but I think they were close enough because okay. the guy was talking to him through a megaphone. Right. It, so like, <laughs> this is so weird. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, even with a megaphone, you have to be, the ships have to be pretty close to each other. So I'm, yeah. I'm assuming he was able to see okay. that it was the Daring. Okay. But like I said, no one really knows who this person was who was talking to this Captain Jacobson, who's the captain of the lighthouse. Mm-hmm. The last time anyone talked to First Mate McClellan or Captain Warmel, that was in Barbados. Okay. And then from there, it went through the Bermuda Triangle. So who knows? But where it was ultimately washed up in this like Diamond Shoals area, this was far to the west of the Bermuda Triangle. So here's an interesting side story. On April 11th, 1921, a local fisherman Mm -hmm. named Christopher Columbus Gray found a message in a bottle or claimed that he found a message in a bottle floating off of Buxton Beach, North Carolina. And this is what the message read. It said, Daring captured by oil burning boat, something like chaser, taking off everything, handcuffing crew, crew hiding all over ship, no chance to make escape. Finder, please notify headquarters, Daring. What? Yeah. And then they showed this letter to the wife of Captain Warmel. Mm-hmm. She's, and she had also known the ship's engineer, this Herman Bates. And she was like, mm-hmm. oh, that's Herman Bates's handwriting. The bottle itself was determined to be from Brazil, which is where they had been. Yeah. But there are a couple weird things about the letters. Oh, and then one thing. So at the time, this really prompted people to think, oh, this might be piracy because this kind of went back to the captain of the light ship, if you remember him talking about the strange steamer that came immediately after Mm -hmm. that wouldn't respond to hail. So they were like, maybe this was a pirate ship. But there are a couple weird things about this letter. Okay. One of which was, it was very strange for whoever was on the ship who wrote this letter to say, notify the headquarters of the company before, like, say, the Coast Guard. Right. Because what is, like, the GG Deering Company going to do about a bunch of pirates? So officials were like, we think this is a forgery. They pressed this uh, Christopher Columbus Gray, who was the person who found it. They Mm -hmm. pressed him about it, and he admitted that it was a forgery. He said he was hoping the publicity would help him get hired at the Cape Hatteras light station. 
What the fuck? It's just like the dumbest fucking plan. <laughs> like, what the was, hell? Hey guys, I found this letter. Job? Yeah, exactly. But anyway, so that doesn't seem to be anything, but there are plenty of people who still think, well, this definitely could have something to do with piracy. Okay. Another big theory is something about hurricanes. You know, there was a lot about hurricanes going on at the time, but it's kind of weird that like, like I said, the ship is actually sailing away from the hurricane and then it did wash up on shore. Somebody let out in a lifeboat. And so like, who, who was that? Yeah. People at the time were thinking this must've been a Russian communist plot. Um, okay. And apparently there were genuine fears of like communists trying to attack like American cargo ships and okay. stuff. But basically it's like an attack on capitalism. Kind mm-hmm. of thing. They think if it was piracy, it could have been rum runners. This was the start of prohibition. Okay. And the Deering was kind of like the right size to be a ship for bootlegging. Here's one of, I think, the more interesting theories mm-hmm. is that if the ship was in distress, you remember it had lit in these two distress signals. Right. This Hewitt, which also disappeared, might have passed it, brought the crew of the Deering on board, and then it mm-hmm. sailed out and also sunk. <laughs> so could have brought down the crews of both ships. Right. Um, here's kind of what I think happened, though. Okay. It might have, ha- it generally might have had something to do with the Hewitt, but I think there was a mutiny on board like i Mm. I think i think if you go back to the tensions between warmel and mcclellan Mm -hmm. and then the strange encounter with the light ship where he was talking to the foreign guy with the red hair who Mm. um was clearly not the captain and the crew was kind of milling about where they were not supposed to Mm -hmm. i think it's most likely that uh there was a mutiny they may have thrown the captain overboard who knows yeah yeah and then being unaware of this area they ended up sailing into this diamond shoals because they didn't didn't really understand the geography i also but then clearly the ship didn't sink when it hit the diamond shoals someone left in the lifeboat so i I do actually think it's possible that if they ran aground on the diamond shoals they may have tried to get away in the lifeboats and that the hewitt maybe picked them up and then also sank but who knows there's been no official explanation has ever been reached it's considered one of the great maritime mysteries it's kind of mentioned in the same breath as like the mary celeste is like one of the most famous ghost ships and that is the story of the bermuda triangle and the carol a deering creepy yeah carol like said, carol a deering i called it the charles deering <laughs> no, no charles deering is a, isn't that an actor no i'm thinking of charles <laughs> Durning. <laughs> we're a mess we're a mess okay. yeah. wow yeah and like i said this like if you dive into the bermuda triangle i mean there is so much like so many stories mm-hmm. and i mean i've even read things where people have tried to connect the mary celeste to the bermuda triangle i'm not sure exactly how that works where did the remember. mary celeste I don't remember. We should do that at some point. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So on the weirdest thing believability scale, where does the Bermuda Triangle fall? I'm going to put it up as like a four or five. I mean, I think a lot of that. Everything is so low. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, except for Loch Ness Monster, that's an 11, but. What the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) No, I think it's a, okay. I'll say it's at least a four or five. Like if it's on a scale of one to 10. Yeah. Because I think there's a lot of things about the Bermuda Triangle that have rational explanations. I think a lot of ships probably sink because of bad weather. I think this Flight 9 story, I think very clearly seems to be human error to me. Right. And like I said, the Bermuda Triangle statistically isn't really that dangerous of an area to sail through. Yeah. But some of the specific stories, like I didn't even get into some of the really weird supernatural type stories. Mm. But like the 
says Bruce Gernan story. If you believe it, and I tend to at least entertain it. Mm-hmm. This is the one about the time warp. Yeah. There's some weird shit. So I don't know how connected any of it is, but I think right. if, if it's like the Bermuda Triangle is the most dangerous and mysterious shipping area in the world i'm like okay like press pause on that okay but if you're like but this specific story and this specific story are super fucking weird yeah I'm like yeah so that's why like it all kind of averages out to like a five five or maybe i'll bump it up to like five or six i mean you know choose your choice i'm just yeah. saying <laughs> that yeah. i think i think a six is the highest we've gone yeah, in the believability I, scale yeah because i said mothman was a six Okay, that is ridiculous to me. I'm I think a, Bermuda actually, Triangle is more believable than the Mothman. I'm going to bump Mothman up to a seven. What the, just to spite me, you <laughs> a-hole? <laughs> As he like crashes through my window and takes yeah. him away. <laughs> yeah. Well, oh I'm, but again, Mothman and Bermuda Triangle, like the reason why to me those are so high is it's the amount of stories and the consistency of the weirdness. Right, right. Um, It's like, I don't know that with Mothman or Bermuda Triangle, I'm going to, be like there's any one explanation but there's just enough that's really fucking weird that it's like Mm. i can't dismiss it the way i do like you know the mongolian death worm or whatever (laughs) correct or chupacabra or chupacabra (laughs) poor poor chupacabra Poor, poor Chupacabra. Awesome. Okay, cool. Well done. Thank you. I am also going to talk about some, like you said, sort of like nautical stuff. And actually, funny enough, kind of having to do with the same area. I'm going to talk to you about Anne Bonny, legendary lady pirate. Nice. Yes. Uh, Sources for this are weak. Wikipedia, Wikipedia, <laughs> Wikipedia, all that's interesting.com, Smithsonian Magazine, and video from Feminist Frequency on YouTube. Okay, cool. Again, like a third of the sources that you had for yours. <laughs> okay, so before we get into like all of the good pirate stuff, I'm just going to explain what exactly piracy is. It's the mm-hmm. act of committing robbery or criminal violence by ship, and it has been around for a really long time. Yeah. Uh, the first known records of pirates date back to the 14th century BC, and it was uh, wow. sea peoples. They were ocean raiders attacking Aegean and Mediterranean folks. Oh, okay. Yeah. So for the most part, piracy was a man's world. It was like a real male dominated profession, I guess. Um, (laughs) If you can call it that. yeah. If you can call it that. (laughs) Women were not allowed on ships because they were believed to be bad luck. Um, And I was like, why? That's rude. And then I found out (laughs) it's because it was thought that having women on the ship would make the crew like argue and fight over them. I mean, I mean, it's a bunch of dudes out at sea. There's like one chick like I get it, but I mean, a sidebar to that is that young boys were also not allowed on ships for probably some bum, bum, ba-dum, yeah. yeah, yeah, to steal a phrase from another popular podcast, it's toxic masculinity ruins the party again. <laughs> Once again, during the golden age of piracy, which is roughly 1650s to the 1730s, mm-hmm. all of the men were leaving home to find work. And a lot of them set sail to do this. Like they right. were like, bye, I'm, I'm either off to be a sailor or I'm off to be a pirate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as usual, whenever men folk leave, women step up to essentially run everything while the men folk are gone. And this is right. 
like anytime the men all leave, whether it's war or, you know, work or whatever, that's yeah, what it's happens. Like, it's like Rosie the Riveter. 100%. So during this time when the men were off at sea, women, you know, basically became kind of the backbone of the economy and they could do trade. They could own ships. They could run inns or alehouses. And mm-hmm. some places even started to let widows keep their husbands like responsibilities and property if they died okay. at sea. Again, all of this allows the economy to keep running while the dude folk were away. So these inns and alehouses that I mentioned, in them, women were doing a fair amount of business with pirates, you know, as was mm-hmm. like just sort of part and parcel of, of the profession. Right. They gave them room and board. They were buying pirated goods and they were even giving out loans, which from what I read was like, actually like all the way around was a big deal. One, that women were doing it. Mm-hmm. Two, that loans were being given out because that was seen as like not, I don't know what it is with loans, but everybody's like, well, no, we don't like it, but yeah. it's a loan. Everybody needs a loan. Yeah. Even you know. a pirate needs a loan. Even look, even pirates need loans. <laughs> um, so even though piracy was a male dominated field, women, you know, were they were in their doing shit, even if they weren't like being actual pirates, Mm -hmm. but some of them actually did become pirates themselves. So female pirates date back to at least 231 BC. Um, The first recorded female pirate was Teuta of Illyria. um, And she was like pirating around the Adriatic. Okay. It was all Um, like the Greeks and stuff. Yeah. So Illyria... (laughs) Sorry, I cannot hear the word Illyria without this is so theater nerdy. It's one of the opening lines of Twelfth Night when Viola is stranded. She washes, you know, she's on a shipwreck. She gets separated from her brother, Sebastian. She washes ashore and she asks the captain, you know, what is this place? And the captain says, this is Illyria, lady. And there was a production at my college and just, I will never forget the way that particular actor would say, this is Illyria, lady. And it just, every time I hear it, it makes me laugh. This is Illyria, lady. No, he was like, (laughs) well, it was an all female. It was an all-female version of Twelfth Night, which is mm. interesting because there's a there's weird right. gender swapping and stuff in Twelfth Night. But it was this wonderful woman by the name of Antoinette, and she she said that she looked like what was his name? Gopher? Is that his name? No, not Gopher, not Gopher. Um, but she looked like the dude on the love boat. She, oh, she yeah. was dressed like the dude on the love boat, and <laughs> so she would just be like, "This is Illyria, lady," and I don't. It just it just made me laugh. It always made me laugh. At any rate, Illyria yeah. was a region in the western part of what is now the, the Balkan Peninsula. Okay. So Tuata was the pirate queen of the RDEI tribe. Mm-hmm. And this little, I mean, not little, but this tribe took on the Roman Empire. Oh, wow. So what was going on is like the RDEI were, were doing their thing, you know, around the Adriatic. And the, the Romans were like, hey, yo, like cut your shit. You're like taking land and doing mm-hmm. all this stuff. And that's not cool because we're the only people who can do that. And Tuata was basically like, come at me, bro. Yeah. She was like, you know, come come and get me. Mm-hmm. So Tuata took over the Ardi the Ardian kingdom after her husband Argon. No, sorry, Agron died. Agron died, no joke, from reveling too much after <laughs> after like a campaign to greatly increase his kingdom, his land holdings. Yeah. And he was like, fucking right. Get me like Just- a like a leg of mutton, get me several skeins of wine, and partied himself yeah, to death. Motherfucker knew how to party. Yeah. 
Yeah. So that happened and Tuata was like, cool, this is mine now. She served as queen regent while Agron's son from another marriage was still very young. I think what I saw was that he was, the son was like still an infant. Mm. So she basically took over as queen regent. Um, And she, Tuata created like a very impressive navy, but more impressive than that were her forces of Illyrian pirates that roamed the Adriatic. Nice. So she was like, cool, I've got like a legit navy but then also like my pirate navy. Yeah. Fun fact, piracy was absolutely legal in Illyria and it was seen as a respectable profession. Nice. So in 230 BC, the Roman Empire is like, okay, like enough. And they sent two ambassadors to Illyria to convince Tuata to like reign in her pirates. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I don't got to do shit. Piracy is legal here. Bye. Yeah. And took the fleet of ships that had come with the two ambassadors, imprisoned one and killed the other. And was like, eat a dick, Rome. So she's just another queen of like, fuck around and find out. 100%. Like she, she really was very much like, come at me. And so Rome obviously was pissed and they did what they do best, which was go to war. Tuata fought boldly and bravely, but Illyria was just no match for the Roman empire. And she ended up finally surrendering to Rome in 227. BC. Legend has it that she stepped down from her throne, went to the top of a cliff in what is now Rison, Montenegro, mm. and threw herself off of the cliff. Okay. There's stories about like that area being cursed now and all that I stuff. I was going to say, like, that's got to be haunted as shit. But. Yeah, who knows? After her death, Illyria continued to defy the Roman Empire until 168 BC. So they still were like, eat a bag of dicks, Rome. Um, <laughs> and in, in 168 BC, the empire finally destroyed the RDEI kingdom. So that's sort of like first known female pirate. And then we hit the Viking Age and the Medieval mm-hmm. Age, and the pirates were mostly, again, solely talking female pirates at this point. These female pirates were mostly Norwegian, Swedish, English. But as time goes on, we start to get some some other female pirates in there that are like French, Swedish, Haitian, mm. even some Americans and Canadians, and a healthy dose of Chinese women mm. were pirating around the 18 and 1900s, which is like feels so late. Yeah, it does. One notable Chinese female pirate was Jing Shi. She was a former sex worker who married a pirate captain, and she ruled the South China Sea from 1801 to 18. 10. She mm. is regarded as one of the most powerful pirates, regardless of gender, in the history of piracy. She grew her fleet to the size of 1,500 ships and wow. over 60,000 sailors. Some estimates say that there were as many as 80,000 pirates like under her watch. So basically like a nation of pirates, it sounds like. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. They were, yeah, they were this massive floating pirate nation. So she ran shit as a pirate for many years and she defeated several attempts by the Qing government to capture her. The Qing government finally offered her peace in 1810 and she was like, cool, thanks. I'm going to retire and I'm going to go marry my second in command. (laughs) Bye. Yeah. So lots of like really, really cool stories about female pirates. There's also a really interesting story and I'm forgetting her name right now, but I believe she was Moroccan. Maybe I'll put it in the show notes or something, but probably one of the most famous female pirates is Anne Bonny. And she was the lady pirate of the Caribbean. Most of what is known about 
Anne comes from an account published in 1724. And this account was called A General History of the Robberies and Murders of the Most Notorious Pirates, Mm. written by Captain Charles Johnson. But a lot of people say that Captain Charles Johnson was a nom de plume for Daniel Defoe, who wrote Robinson Uh, Crusoe. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So there's very little actual records. Most of what we know comes from this and and legend. Mm -hmm. Okay, so born in 1697 or so in County Cork, Ireland, Anne Bonney was the daughter of lawyer William Cormac and his maid, Mary Brennan, Mm. of course. Uh, Cormac was also obviously married at Mm -hmm. the time that Mary Brennan got pregnant with Anne and at the time of her birth. Cormac was very fond of Anne. Like he didn't do the sort of normal, like, oh, this is like my bastard child and I'm going Mm -hmm. to shun you. He was very fond of her, but he wanted to stay married. So he left Ireland for London to get away from his wife's family, not from (laughs) his wife, from his wife's family. Um, yeah. And yeah, and started dressing. This gets, I mean, there's more. Um, <laughs> so he leaves Ireland for London and he starts dressing Anne as a boy and introduces her to everyone as Andy, the mm. child of a relative who'd been left in his care. Okay. When Cormac's wife find out that not only had he had an illegitimate child, but was also trying to pass the child off as a boy that he was bringing up to be a lawyer's clerk, mm. Cormac's wife stopped giving him his allowance. <laughs> Just a lot. I like th- there's a this, lot there. There's a lot to unpack there, but also there's a lot in this story of women all over being like, mm, no, I'm running shit now. <laughs> uh, yeah. which I mean I appreciate. Right. So Cormac trying to flee the scandal packs up Mary Brennan and slash Andy and moves the whole new little family to what is now Charleston, South Carolina. Okay. Mary, Anne's mother, catches typhoid fever and she dies in 1711. Anne, by all accounts, is a stunning redhead with green eyes. She's referred to as a good catch. Mind you, she's about 12 or 13 at this time. Yep. Yeah. And she also apparently had a legendary temper. She Mm. fucking stabbed a servant girl (laughs) with a knife, murdered her, stabbed her to death when she was 13. Okay. And then another story is, is that some dude tried to assault her, tried to rape her, and she beat that man nearly to death. Okay. The poor servant girl was when she was 13. The man who tried to attack her was before she was 17. So she was not messing around yeah don't don't fuck with Anne. no and she would like spend her night in taverns she was like sleeping with drunks and pirates like she was living it up in charleston in 1718 Anne ends up marrying a poor sailor named james bonnie and her dad was like damn it because he really thought that if he could just get Anne settled down with like a good solid well-respected husband that would straighten Anne out and so instead she was like sorry dads marries this poor sailor and you know goes off bonnie james bonnie the man who Anne married has been described as a man who quote belonged to the sea and was not worth a groat Mm, i'm not sure what a groat is not much i'm guessing but apparently not much. Yeah. So at that point, Anne's father disowned her after they got married. And James Bonnie was now the chagrined one as he thought that he'd be marrying into Cormac's fortune. Mm-hmm. There is a rumor that Anne burned down her father's plantation for disowning her. <laughs> I mean, sort of tracks. I mean, yeah, there's no 
proof, but people are like, she burned her, she burned her dad's house down. Okay. So even so the young couple took off for what is now Nassau, but at the time was known as new Providence Island. This area was a place that was known at that time as the Republic of Pirates. Mm-hmm. Was it, okay. is it, is that the Bahamas or is that Barbara? Nassau is in the Caribbean, but it's not, it's, it's, okay. it's Nassau. Yeah. But this is, you know, now we're getting into like literal pirates of the Caribbean shit. Right. <laughs> a quick sidebar, because I wondered this, I was like, why was like, what was going on with the Caribbean? Like why pirates all mm-hmm. over the place? And uh, I found out that there were a couple of reasons. One, there were a ton of pirate seaports like Port Royal in Jamaica, Tortuga in Haiti. Oh, I'm sorry. I was 100% wrong. You were right in what you just said. And Nassau in the Bahamas. Okay. Because I thought yeah. that was the name of the capital of the Bahamas. Yes, I, you were 100% right. I didn't know if there was a different Nassau. Oh, yeah. Okay. Just allow me to gracefully correct myself. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and the second reason why pirates were so big in the Caribbean is that the Caribbean was positioned close to major trade and exploration routes mm-hmm. in almost all of the five oceans. Yeah, so that makes sense. There was just a lot of traffic. I mean, I just thought it was because they liked beaches and stuff, but apparently, <laughs> apparently there was like a real reason for it. Okay. Well, I mean, this goes back a little bit to what I was saying about the Bermuda Triangle just being like, it, it's been one of the most well-traversed shipping lanes right. for like a very long time. Okay, so once Anne and James get to Nassau, Anne quickly is like, oh, marriage is lame and my husband is lame. Because he, like, she thought that he was going to be this, like, cool rule breaker. Mm -hmm. And he actually ended up being a snitch. He would tell New Providence (laughs) Islander, I'm sorry, New Providence Island Governor Woods Rogers about all the piratey stuff that was going on and would, like, collect the bounty Mm. on that. And so she was like, that's lame. Yeah, Um, fucking tattletale. Yeah. Like, I'm not a pirate, and even I think that's funny. Yeah, she was like, I'm out of here. So she ditches James, and okay, let me also say that Anne had a reputation for being, quote, not altogether so reserved in point of chastity, which I mean, meant that she liked to F, and good yeah. for her, yeah. you know? <laughs> like, fucking get it. Yeah. yeah, get it. She's a fiery redhead. She's already lived a life, a whole life by the age of 17. She's yeah. like, I'm going to go get mine. So not being so altogether reserved in the point of chastity, she starts, you know, effing local pirates. Yeah, and as she you do. Soon, as you do. And she soon meets John Calico Jack Rackham. Oh, I've heard uh, of Yes. And she continues to disregard her chastity with him. <laughs> disregarded uh, that chastity all she over. She disregarded that chastity all the way home. Um, <laughs> so Rackham goes to James Bonnie and is like, yo, I will totes pay you some money if you divorce your wife. And James was like, F this, F you. And like, not only that, but I'm also going to beat your ass for asking. At which point Rackham and Anne were like, maybe we should take to the seas. Yeah. So they do. And they disguise Anne as one of Rackham's crew members, okay. uh, like dress her like a man and no one is any the wiser until Anne gets pregnant. <laughs> yeah. And then they were like, whoops. Quick story about the beginning of Anne's pirating career. Again, legend goes that she made a fake corpse out of a dress mannequin that she okay. then painted with fake blood. So they're out on the ship. She's got this mannequin that she's mm-hmm. like dismembered and painted with fake blood. And a French merchant ship is passing and she's like, ooh, ooh, ooh. So <laughs> as this like French merchant ship is passing, they catch sight of her swinging an ax over this like prop corpse. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, 
like, here, like take all of our shit. They were like, we nice. we're not even going to have any kind of like attempt at refusing this. Just like, here's all of our shit. And a legend is born. Okay. It should be noted that on Rackham's crew was another undercover female pirate. And her name is Mary Reed. She is along with Anne Bonnie, probably the other most famous okay. female pirate. Yeah, I mean, just, I've heard both names. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about either of them, but yeah, <laughs> just, this is also weird. And obviously there's no pictures of either of them, but there are a lot of drawings of them. Right. And in the drawings, they're in like the men's pirate outfits. You know, they've got like a, big loose like kind of tunic and their pants mm-hmm. and everything but their blouses are always open and their their boobs are out well like i yeah. think they were like hey just to be clear this is a chick yeah i mean i'm guessing male artists right know, and they're having like, some fun fucking, uh, right pirate boobs <laughs> um pervs okay so <laughs> <laughs> so Mary Reed is also undercover on Rackham's crew. And, uh, you know, she's dressing in drag. She's pretending to be a man. And she ends up being, aside from Rackham, the only other person who knew that Anne was really a woman. Mm-hmm. A quick note about this. Anne revealed herself to be a woman to the male appearing Mary because she was like, what is up. <laughs> and Mary was like, surprise. Yeah. And then she was like, surprise. And here's then they my were pirate both, boobs. Like, yeah, yeah. Here's my pirate boobs. And then they were both like, fucking right. And they <laughs> became lovers. That's according to legend. Okay. Uh, they did become very it. close, but yeah, yeah, like they were, they were like, hell yes. Yeah. They toes got together. Rockham ends up being like furiously jealous that mm-hmm. Anne is paying all of this attention to Mary, who at that time is on the ships again, still dressing as a man and going by the name Mark. And did, um, did Rackham know that Mary was? No. So he knew that he was hiding his own pirate love, bride. Yes. He didn't know that this other woman. Oh, yes. So he's like, what the hell? Why is my wife like all up on this, you know, adorable, young, fresh faced pirate sailor man? Yeah. <laughs> like what the hell is going on? And he like burst into Mary slash Mark's quarters and threatens to slit Mary's throat. And at that point, Mary's like, oh my God, here are my boobs again. <laughs> And Rackham is like, fucking right. (laughs) (laughs) I this is like I I can't believe like vivid entertainment has not done big budget porno version of the story. It's so like, as I was saying it, I was like, why am I telling the story like this? Okay. Uh, And they do go on to become like a pirate thruple. Yeah. (sighs) Okay. There's our title, by the way. Right. Pirate thruple. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I'm so (laughs) stupid. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Settling down. Okay. So Rackham's crew is like, what the, what is all, what what is with all these ladies on the, like, what is with all these secret ladies on the boat? And they're pissed about it. And one crew member actually went so far as to voice his opinion about Anne. And she responded by stabbing him in the heart and throwing his ass overboard. Because, you know. Yeah. I think pregnant and all, she was like, how (laughs) dare you? Yeah. Um, Again, this totally tracks from everything you know about her. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So that happens. 
And then they take like the fleet or whatever, the ship, probably not a fleet, the ship to Cuba where Anne gives birth to her son. Mm -hmm. And after that, Anne Rackham and Mary Reed get a whole new crew. Like they Mm -hmm. get rid of everybody. They steal a whole new ship and they spent the next few years just sort of pirating around Jamaica and the surrounding area. And for the most part, dressed like a woman. And I think Mary Reed did as well, unless they were specifically in battle. And then they both dressed like men. Governor Rogers, who I mentioned earlier, who James Bonney was like giving information to, who Mm -hmm. also was a former pirate. So like, I don't know where he gets off, (laughs) but um, it's like, it's like the old West where all the, like the marshals of the towns, like they would get hired to be like a marshal after spending 10 years fucking as like bank robbers themselves. You know, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So governor Rogers is like, Oh yeah. And like makes up a most wanted pirates list and like puts (laughs) (laughs) Anne Bonnie on that list. And she's like, dang it. Finally in October of 1720, the law catches up with Rackham, Anne and Mary, Mary and Anne fought like the Mm -hmm. law was coming for them. And they were like, you know, you can pry our pirate ship from our cold dead hands and they fought. But unfortunately like the law boats, (laughs) that's not at all a thing, but whatever. Yeah. Um, Caught up, caught up with them like late in the evening early in the morning and all of the dudes were drunk Mm. so the only people to really fight were mary and anne to the point like they were so abandoned by their the rest of their male crew that anne is said to have yelled quote dogs if instead of these weaklings i only had some women with me end Mm. quote which is like fucking right. She knows yeah. She knows what she needs to get it done. Rackham, Anne, and Mary end up being captured, arrested, and taken to Jamaica to stand trial, and they were sentenced mm-hmm. to death. Mm-hmm. Facing death, Rackham asks to see Anne one last time, and she's like, yeah, okay, I'll see you. Mm-hmm. But when she goes to see him, she has like no kind words for her husband, for her captain husband. Well, because she- he fucked up and got all drunk and didn't help Yeah, him. yeah. <laughs> And like left the chicks. Yeah. Yeah. Like she was ready to go to town. She was ready to like, you know, go into battle. And he was like... (sighs) Um, <laughs> sleeping it off. So yeah, she has no kind words for him. She told him that she was sorry to see him there, but if he'd fought like a man, he need not to have been hanged like a dog. Mm, yeah. So she was real like, sorry. I mean, I'm with her on that. Me too. Ever the wily pirates, Anne and Mary both escaped the noose by saying they were pregnant. Mm. They were examined and it was found to be true in both oh. cases. Yeah. So they were from- like- does Rackham probably? Or who knows? Yeah. I mean, maybe they were, you know, pirate throupling with other crew members. Who knows? Mm-hmm. I I hope they were, honestly. Yeah. Mary Reed, unfortunately, died in jail on April 28th, 1721. No one knows what happened to Anne Bonnie. Like, the record of her stops there. But there's no death record. Like, she didn't end up being put to death. She didn't die in jail. She just disappears. Mm. So there are a couple people that say that maybe she just died in prison and there was no yeah. record of it. There are others that say that she traded on her father's good reputation to get out of jail. So she was like, but my dad is William McQu- William." Mm-hmm. William Cormack and like he's a you know good businessman and I'm his I'm his like sweet daughter mm-hmm. um so that she traded on her father's good name to get after out of jail burning his house down after burning his house <laughs> down and stabbing a maid and yeah. like becoming a pirate and that like she returned to South Carolina got married and had a lot of babies <laughs> but no one knows like there is no account of her I accounts could... oh I was just no go say... ahead I could see her trading on her father's good name, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. But it's from everything you've said, I don't see her just like 
retiring to South Carolina and having a bunch of babies. She might have used that to get out of jail, but then who the fuck knows? Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe she's still out there. Maybe she is on one of those ghost ships. I was going to say like maybe flaming the, red hair blowing in the sea breeze. Ghost of Anne Bonnie took over the Carol A. Deering. Yeah. yeah. And she's like, this is mine now, bitches. <gasps> <gasps> Didn't you say that the dude who called out with the megaphone had red hair? Yes. Oh my God. And he, and like described as like a thin man. Oh my God. It was fucking Anne Bonnie. We it was, it, it was the ghost of Anne Bonnie. Yeah. Oh my God. We've <laughs> solved it. We're just thinking. <laughs> Weirdest thing believability scale on Anne Bonny being fucking 9.75 minimum. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. I got that's canon now for me. That's what I'm saying. So accounts of Anne Bonny's life and escapades were written during her lifetime, but it seems most of them got suppressed. The idea is that society didn't really want other women getting any, you know, funny (laughs) ideas. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> about what they could do with their lives from Anne Bonnie. Right. Professor Kate Williams said, quote, Bonnie and Reed, so Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed, broke gender boundaries and stunned people at the time. They were trailblazers in an incredibly male-dominated society who forged their own way, but they have been forgotten by history. Anne's story might have been somewhat forgotten by history in the 18th, 19th, and even 20th centuries, but stories more, like, people are starting to hear more about her. Yeah. As as time goes on. And as a matter of fact, in November of just this last year, 2020, Anne and Mary were immortalized with a statue. The two women are shown standing together on Berg Island in the UK, where hmm. according to the All That's Interesting article, quote, they can keep an eye on the waters where they found love glory and adventure centuries ago. Wow. And that is the swashbuckling tale of Annie Bonnie, legendary lady pirate. Wow. That's crazy. Because I've heard the name. I probably just stumbled on them at some point Anne Bonnie mm-hmm. and Mary Reed, but I didn't know anything about it. Yeah. And like they were, they two, you know, two lady pirates, you know, having to like go in secret and, and from all accounts, these women were badasses. Like when the men were ready to give up, they were like, fuck no. And like somebody that they had captured were like, they cursed a lot. They were swinging their swords. Like <laughs> they were like, oh, they were very scary. scary. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was shocked. I yeah. mean, someone needs to make a movie of this story. And yeah. not, not the vivid porno version, but like, <laughs> I mean, they can make that one too if they want. But like, I mean, this, right. is like, this needs to be like a big Hollywood movie because it's yeah. fantastic. But I feel like all of these stories, you know, I mean, like Tuta, Jingxi, like I feel all, I feel like all of these are incredible stories, Yeah, you know, that should be told because, you know, these women were like, not, not only is it that these women were like, heck yes, I'm going to go be a pirate and live on the sea and do all this stuff. But they were, I mean, they were doing it better than everybody else. Yeah. Well, I mean, like Tuita and Jingxi in particular, I mean, it's like they were mm-hmm. basically commanding armies. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's not, that's legit. Yeah. Yeah. Like that is some legit shit. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Good job. (laughs) (laughs) Good, good job us.
All right. Well, I guess that's it for this week. That's it for this week. Yeah. Stay, stay safe out there. You know, don't depending, depending on, on which side of the argument you fall on, you know, stay out of the ocean or don't go into the mountains, Um, you know, or tell us where your scary places. Maybe you're one of the people who is like, you know, I'm not cool with abandoned urban places. Mm -hmm. I know people who were like super freaked out by the Great Plains. Conversation, like just the big wide open spaces so oh that is a little creepy it is yeah it's definitely when you drive through like upper nebraska or something yeah particularly for someone like me who's used to growing up around mountains like Mm -hmm. it's it's disconcerting but it's not nearly as terrifying as the ocean i don't understand how anybody orients themselves in flatlands oh yeah no there's no way i would never be able to No, I mean, I lived in Lubbock for three years and it's flat in Lubbock Mm -hmm. and I never knew what direction anything was in. Yeah. Well, I mean, even when I lived in Alamosa, which is in Southern Colorado, but it's in the San Luis Valley, which is this big flat area, Mm -hmm. but at least like you can kind of see the mountains on the horizon. So that always gave you a little bit of a, Mm -hmm. you know, but like going to like yeah, like Nebraska or Kansas or Oklahoma or something. I don't I don't know how you are not just wandering around lost all of the time. Well, I mean <laughs> <laughs> I mean I think they are. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Uh, no, no, no shade to any of our, what did we say? Oklahoma, Nebraska, Kansas, Kansas. Yeah. Probably Sorry guys. Parts I don't know. Of the Dakotas. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell did the fucking governor of South Dakota just say? She said some dumb shit about she, illegals, right? Yeah, she's always saying dumb shit. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what this specific one would have been. But. She said something that was like, no illegals better come here and blah, blah, blah. And the stuff that I was seeing on Twitter was a bunch of, you know, Native Americans being like, I'm sorry, they better not come to whose land? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> right. Good like, times. All right. Times. <laughs> anyway, well, as always, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Yes. Uh, please, please. We always say it, but please leave us some reviews. We really want to hear from you. Yeah. And you know, like, I mean, Scotty and I are both creative people. Like we can handle criticism. So don't feel like you have to like, you have to leave us. Right. Like you can leave an honest review. I mean, please be kind. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, leave an honest review. Don't hurt our feelings. Just don't be a dick. (laughs) But yeah. And stay weird. Stay curious. And we'll see you next week. Listen, friends, blow your mind with the finest nonsense we could find. Might be true. And that's the weirdest thing.